independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Once folks start to pick away at that sort of scab of understanding of how much of a role microbes play in the lives of other things in good ways and bad ways, temporally, spatially, physically, spiritually, it, it really does open up a very rich vein of a new dimension to start considering the world around us and, and how we fit in that world. Hey, it's your host, Kamea Shane, and on this episode of Green Dreamer, we are speaking with Siv Watkins, an academically trained microbiologist, independent scholar, ritualist, and the founder of Microorganism, a platform for examining how human beings and culture engages with microbial organisms. We explore fascinating questions like how microbes brokered the deal of photosynthesis, how our microbes aren't ours, how the world of bacteria stretches and blurs the lines of formal definitions of what constitutes life, and more. When I was a small kid, I became sort of unhealthily fixated on microbes for a variety of reasons, and I was slightly obsessive about them. So when it came time to dodge getting a real job and go to college and university instead. Studying microbes was a natural choice for me. And also I was yeah, a bit lazy because I just found it really easy to learn about them. It was a part of my studies that I just completely soaked up and other aspects of, of my degree and my education, which were a bit more challenging, I found less easy to deal with. But the smalls, microbes, have always been, I guess the right word is is magnetic. Magnetic and chaotic and scary and nourishing and, I don't know, tons of other words, I guess. But yeah, there's not really an easy answer to that question. When people think about the history of how our planet came to be, it's quite well accepted and understood that our plant ancestors played a vital role in, for example, taking in and converting energy from the sun and breathing out and exhausting oxygen, which helped to make the earth more and more hospitable for various other creatures, including humans. But you stress that microbes actually deserve a lot more credit as the ones who brokered the deal of photosynthesis. So I would appreciate if you can expand more on their role as brokers and why microbes, or as you call them, the smalls, deserve more recognition than is often given to them for making the larger life of Earth possible as we know them today. I love this question. I'm so glad that you mentioned photosynthesis because it's just one of my favorite topics to harp on about. I, In the teaching that I've done, 
I often speak about the smalls as being conduits or, or vestibules between other living factions of the world. And, it, and photosynthesis is a really very wonderful example of what I mean by that. The reason why plants are so important on this planet and all respect to the plant world, of course, is a long, long time ago, they developed an association, a biological association with very specific groups of microbes that ultimately went on to evolve to become chloroplasts, which are the organelles in plants that mediate photosynthesis. And there's a similar analog to what happened with human beings. We contain organelles called mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell. And mitochondria used to be microbes as well. So that's a very clear, I think, example, two very clear examples of the foundational impact that microbes have had on two very large groups of living beings, two very present groups of living beings that we're all familiar with, humans and plants. But really, that foundational aspect of the character of all microbes, whether they're contemporary microbes, microbes that were the first things to be alive on this planet, they lay the bedrock for every other living thing, every other dead thing that has ever existed on this planet. And it makes sense that a lot of human people wouldn't realize that because up until a few years ago, I think an awful lot of humans had no reason really to consider the microbial universe in their day-to-day life. And, and then we were all confronted with it quite starkly in that sense. But um, once folks start to pick away at that sort of scab of understanding of how much of a role microbes play in the lives of other things in good ways and bad ways, temporally, spatially, physically, spiritually, it, it really does open up a very rich vein of a new dimension to start considering the world around us and, and how we fit in that world. So that question is annoyingly, again, one that I it has a very multifaceted answer to. And it's kind of unfortunate, I think, that uh, generally speaking, the moments when people are called to pay attention to the presence and role of microbes are disproportionately when they're causing some sort of negative impacts like epidemics or bacterial or viral infections and so forth. But there's still so much more to this big picture that we don't know yet about the microbial world, which is really humbling and for me just even more fascinating to dive into learning about. You share that microbes are as unique to every person as their fingerprint, and wherever we go, we leave a microbial signature. And you also write that your microbes are not yours. They are very distinct living entities that happen to agree that your gut or your skin, lung, or mouth at this particular moment in time is a suitable and rewarding environment to live in, end quote. With these things in mind, How resonant is the analogy that our bodies are kind of like unique ecosystems and communities, as in, for example, there might not 
ever be a silver bullet, one-size-fits-all probiotic people can simply ingest to achieve microbial balance for their own unique bodily communities? And also, could this idea that your your microbes aren't yours be analogous to a particular forest? If they had a voice, for example, saying that the community of animals currently living here aren't ours, but they just happen to agree that in this particular moment, this is a suitable and rewarding environment to live in. I wonder if this train of thought is applicable to different levels of beingness in that way. And this just popped up, but just to toss another thing into the mix, if so, whether there could be a sense of indigeneity in the microbial world as well, like communities saying we belong to this body, this land, this ecosystem. I know there's a lot of things going on in this ramble here, but I'm just curious whatever direction you'd want to take this in. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of really, you know, spicy stuff in there to talk over. I think um, one of the things that I harp on about in all of the online courses that I've offered and a lot of the essays that are up on my platform, Microanimism, is this idea of agency, right? This idea that if you can respect that a juniper tree or a mountain lion has its own sense of agency in the world, then it stands to reason that you need to be able to do that for microbes, right? And so that means... And this ties in a little bit to what you said about the unfortunate way that a lot of people come to know about the smalls, which is if a, if a mountain lion mauls you on a hike or, you know, a, a friend of yours on a hike, I think people are a lot more comfortable with saying, well, mountain lions are mountain lions and, and that's what they do than somebody dying of rabies. And, that's that's not to discount people who are have violent interactions with slightly more charismatic fauna and living things but i think the idea of infectious disease is really it's really a troublesome concept to a lot of people because it doesn't involve somebody applying a violence to one's body it involves an ingress it's a it's a violation it's a non-consensual invasion of some part of you And it's really difficult to invite the idea of agency. It's really difficult to reconcile the idea that something that is invading one's being that way, that it's not an act of malice, that it's just a thing. And so when you say, oh, it's unfortunate that folks come to learn about the smalls that way, that's true because there's a lot of... I mean, I'm heavily biased, but there's a lot of very shiny, sparkly, amazing things to learn about in the microbial world. But learning about them through disease is is, it's just a thing. It's uh, a very obvious interaction that we have with them. Less obvious interactions that we still have on the day-to-day involve things like making food or um, gardening or interacting with pets or, or the built environment. It's, it's part of a greater tapestry. And this idea of the smalls that inhabit the surface of, of our body and, and the inside parts of our body not belonging to us, I think is a really important step to understanding the relationship that we have with them 
on lots and lots of different planes. So yes, there are these very obvious biological interactions that we have with them, physiological interactions, sometimes mental. And those are the ones that science, and I'm doing air quotes, knows about, right? Those are the ones that science is familiar about. So when we talk about the probiotic industry, or when we talk about the microbiome being the source of all solution to any number of diseases, we're talking about science with a capital S manipulating a population that associates with us with very little regard for the fact that it's not an ownership-based system. It's a, it's a collaboration, right? And, and the microbes that human beings have, that plants have, that my pet cats have, that my pet horses have, were collected and developed long before we were all born. A lot of these microbes are handed down from our mother. They're collected by our parents, by our family, by the people that we interact with through interaction with buildings and landscape and food for maybe hundreds of years before we're even born. So there's a really substantial and profound embedding, which again is a, a conduit between us and the rest of the world that's mediated very, very solidly by the smalls. And I think your analogy of a forest and the animals is a pretty good analogy. And I also think that depending on one's own personal relationship with the smalls, there are lots and lots of other analogies to be had too. So my relationship to the smalls as somebody who has studied them for 20 years and who is enamored by them, terrified by them, in love with them, all these things, is going to be very different to somebody who has Lyme disease or is HIV positive. And this, I think, is, is why, you know, there are so many rabbit holes to go down when you start thinking about this work is because this universe and these relationships and dynamics between human beings and the smalls is, is multifactorial. It, it goes through time, through space. Yes, we have the biological, physiological relationships, but we also have emotional relationships with them psychological relationships with them, ancestral relationships with them. And that's why I think it's such a meaty space to start digging into. And also through another perspective, this idea that our microbes aren't ours, I wonder if that could be the beginning of people also seeing that individuals, while of course having our own agency, aren't these neatly bounded beings but actually in everything that that we consist of are more than human like there's at a biological level there's no way to draw a neat boundary of separation there's not mm. one definitive way of defining me as a self because my cellular and microbial community mm -hmm. that make me are constantly transforming as well yeah, I absolutely. And that's a really powerful idea when you start thinking about microanimism. The sense of self becomes very, very blurry when you start thinking about one's own personal microbiome. And, and you start to, to look at this situation a little bit differently. And the questions become things like, 
am I a human being having a microbial experience or am I a collection of microbes having a human experience? Because there are more microbial cells associated with our persons than there are human cells. And they play roles in digestion, in our nervous system, in our immune system. Like truly, there are many aspects of that relationship that that define us, define our persons and define very broad reaching aspects of who we are and our, our personal histories, our ancestral histories, all sorts of things. So yeah, I think that over the last couple of years, I've tried to stop using the word nature quite so much because I think that the idea of nature is is a bit of a falsehood. It suggests that there is this separation between us and everything else when, of course, we're just, we're just part of a continuum. And that, that comes back to the idea of a conduit. And it can be easier to see how our microbes allow us to merge with that continuum to blend in with the the rest of the life and the death around us that we might we might find difficult when we're sort of embedded in a capitalist materialist society as as many of us are you're listening to green dreamer a community supported podcast As we enter into the last season of this year, we really do have to stress that we need your direct support in order to continue the show into the next year. So if you're learning from and feeling inspired by our conversations, please come join us as a patron starting at just $2 a month at greendreamer.com slash support or purchase a recycled paper Green Dreamer planner from our fundraising shop at greendreamer.com slash shop. Just thinking with the microbial world, the fungi world, it brings up so many questions and this could go in like a million different directions, but you've mentioned (laughs) before that microbiologists you've worked with talk about a sixth sense when working with microbes. How would you elaborate on that and on this statement that culturing microbes is an art and relies heavily on intuition, end quote. What does this look like in practice? And is this the beginning of how you came to relate science to animism? Yeah, that's a a beautiful question. And again, I mean, it's probably becoming clear at this point that I exist in the space of almost complete chaos. Like, Like, I always joke to my students that microanimism is just a collection of unanswered questions or unfinished thoughts, really. But yeah, I mean, I guess arguably scientists are some of the most practical, logical folks that you can interact with, at least... I was uh, when I started because you rely so heavily on data and numbers and I love data and I love numbers still but um, you do come to a point where you realize especially when you're working with microorganisms who for, for whatever reason are difficult to study that you don't know what you don't know and so Say you're growing E. coli in the laboratory, which is one of the organisms that students will grow first, because in theory, they're easy, air air quotations again, to grow. And you'll be given a, a recipe, which is like chicken broth for bacteria. And you'll make your broth. 
and you'll sterilize the broth and you'll inoculate your broth with E. coli and within maybe half a day you'll have a lovely soup full of of E. coli cells because bacteria reproduce exponentially. But sometimes it just doesn't work. Nine times out of ten it will work, but the tenth time sometimes it just doesn't work. And it's consistently baffling and frustrating and... um. It can be discouraging for for students and folks learning about bacteria, but when you get to the point in your career and you interact with folks who are at the same stage in their career as you, who've been doing it for five years, ten years, often working with one organism, one genera, one species, or even one subtype of bacterium, you develop an intimacy. And even the most practically-minded microbiologists that I've met still develop a level of intimacy with these organisms, which is, I, th- I think, you know, I, I've just never been able to ignore it. I've always found that really fascinating. And so somebody who is really experienced at working with uh, cyanobacteria, for example, will walk into the lab in the morning and, and see their flasks and say, oh, that that guy's not happy, he's about to die, needs more, whatever, nitrogen or whatever. And you can be looking at a flask being like, well, it looks pretty looks pretty green to me, looks okay, and then within two hours it's crapped out. So these relationships come from somewhere. And I, I never really had the balls to ask anyone about it directly. And uh, I'm not sure I haven't reached out to anyone since. I probably should do that. I should probably reach out to some colleagues and ask them about it. But um, I think when I began to examine what was going on there within my own experience, the limits of my own experience, the truth of it is, is that every single human being has a very well-established, very well-developed relationship with the smalls, whether we know it or not, right? And the vast majority of that relationship does not involve disease or suffering or epidemics or anything like that. Some of it, for sure, yeah, chickenpox or, you know, whatever. But this other sort of more esoteric aspect of the dynamic between the smalls and the human beings is so tangible and so accessible to everybody, whether you're a microbiologist or not, I think we can't help but form those intimacies and those connections that we don't really understand. It's it's they're just sort of delivered to us. And then of course, you know, it it's up to the individual how how they pursue that relationship. What does that mean for them personally? And there's no real right or wrong answer. There are only really sort of human answers to how we interact with other than humans but um yeah i think that i think that's a really interesting discussion within the field of microbiology and it's something that i've always gone back to whenever i've had a blip and thought that i was probably just a crazy lady that there's something so tangible there to to examine that um connection between the scientist and and the subject of of their study
You're listening to Green Dreamer, an alternative podcast made possible by listeners like you. To support our community-powered show and listen to our disruption-free, extended, and bonus episodes, join us today on Patreon at patreon.com slash green dreamer. When you talk about this intimacy with and the agency of the smalls, it makes me think about the phrase culturing microbes. And I know that's just the other meaning of culture as a verb, but it does make me wonder about the culture of microbial communities as well. And if that's something that's come up in your research or in your intuition and in your observation, that it might be possible for microbial life to develop and sort of have distinct cultures defined in, of course, their own very unique ways. Yeah, I mean, I guess arguably that's not really not really a thing for me to say yes or no to because uh, I'm just a puny human being. But my, my sense of it is, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, as with anything, all of all of the best thoughts and ideas and intuitions come from learning more about diversity and so just by virtue of of learning of the the breadth of capacity and facility in the microbial world I can absolutely see how there are personalities which is you know very anthropomorphic sort of idea but if you compare for example let's see the the microbes that live up your nose that um, probably live and die within the course of a few days. And you compare those ones to the ones that live in the crust of the earth that have been there for millions and millions and millions of years, not dead, not alive, not really doing anything, but just almost sort of bearing witness to the planet as it grew up and and the things that sprouted all over the surface of the planet. I mean, those are are very disparate communities. Those are very, two very different types of, of wisdom, both equally as valuable, both equally as engaging, both equally as capable in their own ways, but very, very different nonetheless. And this is also just with regard to the bacterial world. You, you like as soon as you start talking about the viral world, all bets are off. It gets really spooky really quickly. But I think what's worth mentioning here is that the vast majority of the smalls that we're aware of that we have studied are a result of the fact that they are accessible to our, our scientific methodology. But by virtue of applying some of our sort of kind of adorable but quite clumsy techniques for studying them, like culturing them in a laboratory, like growing our E. coli soup, as soon as we start doing that, we're no longer working with a member of the ecology as as it defines itself. It becomes a domesticated thing. It becomes a different type of person. I guess it's analogous to what we were talking about with the idea of infectious disease and how that feels like an affront. 
It's a similar situation if you pull a a microbe out of its environment and put it in a fridge and transfer it to a lab and and you try and grow it in chicken broth or whatever, that's non-consensual. So this is this is why I think uh, I ended up categorizing these sort of three very broad flavors of the relationship that we can examine as practitioners of microanimism is is these ideas of of what we know we know which which comes from the E. coli and the ones that live in the lab, what we know we don't know, which is the stuff that's completely inaccessible to our, our techniques and and tools. And then what we don't know, we don't know, which is what I spend a lot of time thinking about outside of the scope of more practical science and and through slightly more esoteric interrogation. But um, I suppose that idea of domesticating these ones is a separate culture in of itself and another aspect of the universe that's worth worth exploring a little bit that puts a whole new spin on how we interact with them when we start thinking about how we manipulate them, particularly, you know, for example, with biotechnology and, and, and stuff like that. I really enjoy just dwelling in this uncomfortable space of not having clear answers. And actually, a lot of these responses are currently sparking a lot more questions for me. So I just really appreciate (laughs) this conversation with you. And I'm also thinking about how applying the lens and tools of science to understand the smalls might raise questions in regards to how the field of science currently defines what it is that even constitutes life to begin with. So what have you thought through about this? And what do you think is important to highlight here? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, this is like, it's such a soupy, nebulous question, because science loves boxes. (laughs) Science loves these neat little receptacles that you can pick something up and and plop it in this little box and say, yes, this, this pertains to this. So one of the first things that I remember being taught in school was the definition of life. And, uh, I have a PhD and I probably couldn't spin off all of them in order, but it's stuff like respiration and excretion and and all that good stuff. But it's such a a stark boundary, I think, especially to a microbiologist, is to say this counts as alive because consistently year after year, decade after decade, we see from the smalls, even with our very fumbling, limited capacity to interrogate and examine and question them, that a lot of the stuff they do really doesn't fall within these categories of life. And again, I think a really obvious example of that are viruses. Microbiologists, biologists cannot agree whether or not viruses technically are alive. The main reason being that they're obligate intracellular parasites. So a, a virus traditionally has been defined as, as a being that can't replicate itself unless it invades a host cell and kind of hijacks the biochemistry of that cell to make proteins and things like that. In the last 10 years, we've come across viruses that appear to have the remnants of the machinery to make their own proteins. And very recently, we've we've found bacteria that are visible 
to the naked eye and sort of fundamental ideas of biology suggest that that shouldn't be possible. So, yeah, uh, the idea of alive, and I don't, I don't want to sound like, like I'm being cute or anything, but the more I, I explore the idea of, of aliveness with the smalls, and I've had some really amazing conversations with students about this too, I think it's, it doesn't really matter to them. I think it's, it's not as, as highly resolved a definition for them as it is for us, not least because, and this is going to sound trite, but the microbial world makes death productive. Anything that's comprised of matter, organic matter, squishy bits and fatty bits and, and what have you, when it dies and it passes, the microbial universe turns it into stuff that can be used for something else. It brings everything back to the earth. And the, the microbial world, and again, I'm, I'm referring mostly to bacteria, inhabits this very, very broad spectrum of what it means to be alive and what it means to be dead. So E. coli doubles every 20 minutes and it, it dies pretty quickly. But then you have some beings that live at the bottom of the oceans that divide every two or three years. And that's just contemporary bacteria. If we think about the ancestral relationships that every generation of bacterium has since the beginning of time, it, it's just like this gigantic pool of really ancient wisdom and they don't operate with language the way that we do. I think an awful lot of people would find the idea of communicating with them a bit strange and a bit daunting, even folks who have experience with communicating with other than humans. But it's just this, this shimmering sort of kaleidoscopic repertoire of experience and knowledge and capacity. And within that repertoire, I think that concepts of aliveness and death and and dying it, it just doesn't make much difference to them either way mm. I'm also really interested in thinking through the ideas of embodied or unnamed knowledge and intellectual knowledge so you've shared before that it probably doesn't matter that we only just figured out in the last 100 years what a bacterial phage is because we've been hanging out with them for a really really long time anyway end quote so maybe before we were able to put a name on the microbial world, people knew in other ways whether or not their interpretations or stories were necessarily correct or as specific, that these complex processes of decomposition and transformation and exchanges were happening by way of not readily visible activities. Maybe it was felt, maybe it was embodied, maybe it manifested in more visible symptoms that people were then able to make meaning out of and so forth. At the same time, you share your concerns with how people now with an intellectual awareness of microbes being led by curiosities such as maybe we can use these microbes to help clean up oil spills or address plastic pollution and so forth. So I guess there's a delicate recognition that knowledge and intellectual knowledge, while in the big picture, I would say really contributing to 
a growth of our collective awareness in a positive way, that it could open up possibilities for people to feel like they have a sense of control over, to use this knowledge in service to particular interests, or to solve problems in very limiting, possibly extractive, possibly exploitative ways. And I don't at all see this in a black or white either or way at all. So I just want to hold this complexity here of kind of all of the above. But still, I am curious to have you share more about your concerns in regards to the use of knowledge of microbial life to solve different crises. And then also just anything else that might have surfaced for you from these prompts. Yeah, these notions of techno-solutionism and, and um, manipulation of the smalls is so, is so foggy. And I've... I've made quite a lot of big statements about this kind of thing because I have big mouth, but also I I haven't I haven't really been able to settle on the parts of it that feel intuitively squeaky for me. So I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't use bacteria to produce insulin. Like I'm not su- suggesting we should go back to using pig pancreases to do that and there are lots of other extraordinary technologies that have come about in association with um, microbial technologies which I'm grateful for and probably myself have benefited from and people I know have benefited from I'm sure we all know at least one person who who needs insulin all this kind of stuff so it's very very I try to approach this as gingerly as I as I can, but the idea of microbial technology and techno-solutionism does make me nervous. And I think part of what makes me nervous uh, about the idea is that there's a fundamental gap in understanding the dynamic of the relationship between the smalls and the human beings. So I'm not... Am I saying if everybody woke up tomorrow morning and were invested in honoring the dynamic that they personally have with the smalls and blah, 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 that would make it better? No, I'm not saying that. I'm I'm just saying that this is a, a question that is worth asking. It's a question that is worth exploring. And I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's very messy. I think... One of the things that I always say is like, if you're going to feel okay about throwing domesticated fungi in the ocean to clean up oil spills, then you should feel okay about throwing pandas in the ocean to clean up oil spills, which is, you know, facetious, obviously, but it hits different. It hits people a different way when you're talking about fungi, because I think there's a sense that they are disposable. And I'm not sure why. Maybe it's because they grow prolifically. Maybe it's because they don't have furry, cuddly little bodies. Maybe it's just that people aren't aware of who they are. And even deeper within this idea, there's it, there's been a, a lot more interest in, in the idea of fungal worlds and mycelial worlds in the last few years, which is great. Lots of very, very smart people much smarter than me talking about human dynamics between us and and fungi. 
And I think a lot of people feel warmly towards the fungi, but I'm not sure if that extends necessarily towards viruses, towards bacteriophages, towards bacteria. And I, I don't know why that is. And I think if we're if we're gonna if we're gonna put this sort of mantle on the microbial world, which is essentially they're going to clean up all of our mess for us. Like, look at these amazing beings that can eat uranium. Look at these amazing beings that we can clean up the Ganges River with. Aren't they wonderful? Lucky us <laughs> kind of a thing. It's like, eh, that's kind of how we got to where we were in the first place, right? Is this idea of doing a thing to fix a thing in the short term without really understanding what the long-term consequences are. This relates also back to the idea of, of this, the planes that they inhabit. I mean, it's not difficult to find a bacterium or um, fungi in the soil that is able to bioconvert one thing into another thing. It's what they're famous for. It's, it's what they do, right? It's not hard to find... Uh, bacillus or, or something else that can eat molybdenum for you, right? The thing is, it's like, yeah, they can do that, but they're designed to do it over evolutionary timescales, not in the next three or four years. So what would happen if we dumped, I don't know, a few Olympic swimming pools worth of fungi into the Atlantic Ocean to deal with plastics? We don't know. And without a, a lot more of um, of depth to our relationship with those ones and the processes that allow them to do that, I think um, it's concerning that we would just feel so blasé about doing it. That's a really woolly answer to that question. I still like I really have a, a lot of trouble framing my thoughts about this, and they change all the time. And it's um. Yeah, sometimes it's fun to talk about and sometimes I'm just like, oh man, I don't I don't know what I'm talking about. I should become an accountant. So we are nearing the end of our main conversation and here I'm interested in connecting the micro with the macro. So when we think about the various interconnected more macro crises like climate change or social injustices, health epidemics, biodiversity loss, and so forth, what role can microanimism play in terms of helping to expand or root our perspectives on these larger or seemingly larger-than-life issues, or even serving as reminders of what we don't know and aren't capable of fully understanding? Mm, yeah, this is a, a wonderful question that I'm asked a lot and I always feel like there's somebody out there who's a bit more equipped to deal with this than I am because I'm real good at microbes and I find it much harder to understand human beings. But um, I think what I come back to a lot is, and it, it sounds trite, I don't know, maybe your performance a little bit, but the truth of it is, is the most obvious example that, I can offer from the microbial universe that's worth exploring is the importance of diversity. It's the importance of abundance versus rarity. It's the importance of violence and peace. It's the importance of lots of members in a community that can do the same thing as other members and members that can do completely different things to other members. Like 
I can, I could talk for hours and hours and hours about microbial diversity and how all of it feeds into a greater structure. And that in any sort of engineered or observed system, when you lose diversity, you end up with a sick system. You end up with a system that doesn't function the way it's supposed to. And I have in the past written essays about this in relationship to capitalism, for example. And it, it doesn't, you know, you can replace the word capitalism with anything else and, and still find that the root comparison is diversity, biologically speaking. This is not even from a sort of more esoteric kind of cerebral perspective. Like fundamentally in biological systems, in ecologies, diversity is what keeps every member strong and um, doesn't take long for folks to figure that out when you start stepping into this work. What has been one of the most impactful books you've read or publications you follow? American Gods by Neil Gaiman has really framed a lot of my perspective on the living universe. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? Lots and lots of time on my own. And what is one of your greatest sources of inspiration at the moment? I look after rescued racehorses and um, yeah, those guys, the rescued racehorses are, are pretty special beings. Well, Green Dreamer, we are coming to a close here, but to learn more and stay updated on Siv's work, you can head to www.microanimism.com. And Siv, thank you so much for joining me here on the show today and for this incredibly thought-provoking conversation. For now, what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? I guess I want everybody to know that the microbial universe is not a trivial thing to think about. It's really old. It's really scary. Uh, it's very confusing. But um, stepping in and meeting those ones on a level that you perhaps haven't considered before can do really wonderful things for your perspective about the rest of the world. So I invite you all to give it a try. Thank you for tuning in and thank you so much if you've already come over to support our work at greendreamer.com support. You can also really help us out by purchasing our Green Dreamer planners at greendreamer.com shop through submitting five-star reviews in the podcast app or through sharing your favorite conversations with your loved ones. 
Green Dreamer's audio engineer is Scott Donnell. Our supporting researcher and editor is Anissa Sima Holly, and I'm your host and producer, Kamea Shane. Take care for now, and we'll catch you soon in the next episode.